Good morning. It's good to be with you. It was good to be here last evening, and I particularly appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning as well. My, my lovely wife is not able to be with me. She's uh, been dealing with bronchitis, and uh, even though I think she's feeling much better, she's still going into some of those coughing spells, and she said, I don't want to all of a sudden have everybody drawing their attention to me hacking and hacking. So, uh, but she sends your greetings, sends her greetings to you. And I send greetings to you from the other 135 churches in the Eastern District of which you're a part. And you're a critical part of that. And, and what a wonderful association of churches it is. I wish you could come with me sometime and just to see all the multiple ways that God is honored, God is glorified, that God is blessed. It's really quite something to see. And I appreciate this church very, very much as you're about to find out in just a couple minutes. Well, let me start off by saying this. Did you ever notice that there are major milestones in every one of our lives? Major milestones. At least they're major to, to us. Sometimes the first milestone, I remember one of my first milestones was getting my driver's license. That was huge. I, I think I probably scared a lot of people by getting my driver's license, but it was a huge blessing to have, be able to have that. And then, of course, there's graduation. That's another milestone in our lives. And then, of course... If God enables, marriage. Wow, that was a milestone I think we go back to. And, and then also having children, the first children. In my case, having grandchildren. All these are major milestones. Well, last week, I experienced another major milestone in my life. I turned 65. And yes, all of you who are younger, which is virtually all of you, you're going to be contributing to my Medicare health insurance, whether you like it or not. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't plan it, but I had to do it too for all these years. So, uh, but I want to tell you ahead of time, I appreciate it. Now, I'm not near ready to retire. Uh, not near, but uh, as God would enable. But I am 65, and that was a shocker. Wow. And one of the reasons it was a shocker, because when I was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer back in 1990, uh, my doctors told me that I'd be very fortunate to ever reach 55. And one of them, I remember, said, Steve, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hope for the best, and, and who knows, maybe, maybe you'll even reach 60. <laughs> and, and here I am at 65 through God's grace. I'm sort of the star patient at our oncologist's office because I still keep taking medications and shots and everything. But, I, but God has enabled it to work well, and, and I feel really good about it. At any rate, I'm sort of the star patient. Every time, I, every time I go someplace, I always get a kid around, but I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm their star patient because they believe it's the medicine, you know? Uh, but I know differently, and you know differently, too, and it's simply God's grace and his blessing, so I thank him for that. But I want you to know, as all of you begin to grow older, and you will, and you are, just like I am, there are some advantages to this. I've noticed, for instance, one advantage is I've noticed waitresses are nicer to me now. Uh, they are. Some of them even call me honey. Nobody ever used to do that. I I've noticed some people, when I come to a, a, in a public place, they'll open the door for me. They'll stand and stop, and they'll smile. People never did that. Uh, yeah. And, and then also, there's that advantage of senior citizen discounts. You know, the 10% you get. The bad part of it is, for me, uh, they don't even ask me. They just take one look and go, senior citizen, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I, I'm grateful. Now, there's some disadvantages, too. One disadvantage is I've noticed that doctors, for example, seem to be getting younger and younger. Uh, yeah, it is. I, I was recently at a doctor, and he was examining me. And all the time he was examining me, I kept thinking in my head, there's no way this guy finished med school. He's just a kid. 
He couldn't possibly be. He looks so young. But then again, everyone looks young to me now. But turning 65 has also caused me to think more often and more intentionally about the wonderful eternal future that awaits me someday in heaven and all of us who believe. (laughs) All who believe. What a day that'll be. To stand in his presence. Wow. And thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, none of us need fear death any longer. But as I look forward to that day when I'll see my Savior face to face, I'm also reminded that I'm going to have to give an account, as we all are, of what kind of servants we were. How good a servant we were. How good a servant we were with the gifts he's entrusted to us and the talents and the abilities and the time and the energy. How good a servant. Hmm. Our culture doesn't really value something called servanthood, does it? I mean, I mean, how many people, you know, if they were interviewed, they say, what would you like to do in your life, particularly if you're young? They say, well, I'd like to grow up and be a servant. <laughs> Not many uh, people in our culture would admire that type of thing. And yet that's exactly what Jesus called himself, a servant. And it's exactly what he calls all of us to be, his servants. And oh, I long, as I'm sure you all do too, who know him as your savior, I long to be able to someday hear him say to me in his presence, well done, good and faithful servant. But I want to say something. God measures our servanthood with a very high standard. That's clear in scripture. Just just aside with this, I remember uh, Billy Graham was being interviewed on ABC by Diane Sawyer. And this was after his wife had passed away, and he's rather old and frail. And he was sitting on his front porch of his home in North Carolina during the interview. And at the end of the interview, Diane Sawyer said to him, Billy, realizing he's not going to be around for much longer, he said, Billy, she said, Billy, when you die, how do you want to be remembered? And of course, he answered in the inimitable Billy Graham style. He says, oh, Diane, he says, I- I'm not really concerned about how I'm going to be remembered. And then he said, but what I do care about is that when I die, and I go into God's presence, and I could hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he said to her, very seriously, but I don't think I'm going to hear that. Screen faded. That was the end of the interview. And I sat there shocked. (laughs) I hope you feel the same way. I was thinking, well, if Billy Graham isn't going to hear that, (laughs) what chance do any of us, what chance do I have? That's for sure. Now, I think... I want to credit Billy with an amazing amount of humility. And I think he was answering that in the humble way that God has created him. But I also want to say something, because I think that remark of his reminds us all the high standard to which God calls all of his followers who want to be his servants. I know that if I, I believe that if I'm ever going to hear God say to me someday, well done, that I'm going to have to be faithful to, the, to fulfill the vision that he's given me for our dist- eastern district. And what is that God-given vision for this district? Well, I believe God has called me to exhort and encourage and enable to the best of my ability through him to help all of our district churches, including you, to become churches without walls. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that we start tearing down these walls. I don't mean that at all. But to be a church without walls 
the body of Christ, just like we're doing here this morning. We always, we come together. We come together to worship him, to lift up his name and glorify him. We come together to pray. We come together to fellowship. We come together to study together and learn his word. But then the church always leaves the walls and goes out into the world because that's where the church is most impactful. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's wonderful to invite people to church and please keep doing that. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. But the church has always existed outside of the walls. Jesus never said, in all of his ministry, he never said, oh, I have a message for you that's going to change your life, a message that's going to turn your heart upside down. Come to the synagogue on Saturday night and hear it. You'll be changed forever. No, he didn't tell them that. He went to where they were. He went to the marketplaces. He went to the temple where they were out during the week. He went through the streets. He went to the hillsides. And he shared the good news. That's what we mean by a church without walls. Well, what does a church without walls look like? Well, I believe it has two parts to it. The first part is that a church without walls is a church that intentionally engages, engages its community to earn the privilege of sharing the gospel, to engage its community. Wow. And how do I know if a church is really engaging its community? How do you know if this church is? You ask yourself, I believe, two questions. Number one, you ask, if this church somehow, what a tragedy it would be, this church that Jesus Christ built, your church right here, Cornerstone, if it went out of existence, would anybody in the community notice? And number two, would anybody in the community care? Well, my friends, You'll never know how delighted I am with the example and the witness of this church in your community. Oh, what you have done and what you are doing and what God's leading you to do just stirs my heart. Your your commitment to open up other sites, uh, other campuses even, to to expand the, the sharing of the gospel, but also to minister to people's needs directly where they are so that you earn the privilege of sharing the gospel. Your witness and example of that is so encouraging. I just want to, I want to congratulate you on that. I want to exhort you on that. I want to encourage you with that. Uh, what a blessing this church is because you love not only with words, but also with deeds. And oh, how God's heart is touched and how he uses that when churches are willing to do just that. Your, your servant's heart humbles me and I thank God for you. So my message this morning is simply meant to encourage you. It's, it's, it's a simple message, as you'll see, not real complex, but perhaps God will, will bless my inadequate words and enable them to strengthen and uplift you on your ongoing journey in becoming a church without walls. I thank God for you. But unfortunately, not all of our churches are like this one. Now, some of them really struggle to follow your example of being a church without walls. And I believe that the reason they struggle is because of the second part of that becoming churches without walls vision. And what's that? The second part of that vision is to lower the barriers in our hearts to truly love the unlovely. Hmm. What do you mean, Steve, by loving the unlovely? Who are the unlovely? Define that. Okay, I will. The unlovely are simply anyone, those people around us who are different than us. Anyone who is different than us. They, they, might, be, they might be men with full body tattoos and multiple piercings and, and a scowl on their face when you walk down the street. Or they might be the arrogant rich who uh, turn up their noses at you in the mall. <laughs> 
They could be anybody, whether rich or poor, whether black or white, whether citizens or aliens. We're suggesting that anybody who's different than us has the risk of running in our own minds, in our own hearts, of being the unlovely. And God calls us to truly love the unlovely, to love them deeply. That's what God calls us to. In December, I, uh, I moved our district office from Allentown, Pennsylvania, down to Camp Hill, nearer, closer to my home. After five years, I finally wised up. And it was an interesting time. God blessed it wonderfully. And, and of course, we live on a, uh, we operate on a pretty, uh, a pretty limited budget. So, but it was wonderful because God provided this little apartment in an apartment building uh, for us to move into. We're in apartment number three. And it was blessing. It was really good. But we were no longer there for, oh, maybe no longer than a week or two. We began to notice something very interesting. The, the man down in apartment one owns this monster-looking pit bull. Uh, and this thing, and he's walking it outside all the time, and it looks like it's ready to attack it. He also loves to play hip-hop music, and he blasts it. It really blasts it. Now, that's, that's not all that bad. I don't mean that, but... Karen uh, Johnson, our office manager, she loves classical music. So when she's in the office and they hear the boom, 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 and it's going on, she's cranking up the classical, and, and it's like this war between these two types of music, you know, and there's this cacophony of sounds, which just simply sounds, you know, uh, very, very difficult. But that's apartment one. It, down underneath us in apartment two, uh, well, there's a couple in there that uh, we can't, really get to see them. They keep all the blinds closed. You never see them. I, you, you see the light on every now and then. You, every now and then you hear little sounds, but the, you, don't, you don't really know they're there. One night, since our entrance is on the outside and you have to go up a flight of stairs, I kept the light on uh, outside the door because I was coming back to the office that night and I wanted to be able to see, to put the key in the lock at least, you know. Well, when I get there, the light's off. And I went, huh, I wonder what happened with that. Hear what they had done. In good old uh, uh, apartment number two, uh, they had come up at our light fixture, uh, taken off the globe and unscrewed the light bulb. They didn't like that light on. <laughs> and then in apartment four, right, uh, in apartment four is, is a woman, and God bless her, she, but she is one of the most foul mouths I think I've ever heard. Through our little thin walls, we often hear her yelling this whole string of profanities, which is really interesting when you're bringing pastors in for interviews. Um, <laughs> It catches their attention. Did I hear that? Is that, is that? Yeah, that goes on all the time. Well, one day we were meeting around here, and all this was going on at once. We got the hip-hop thing going. We, we, we've, got the, we've got the profanities going. The whole, I remember my, my team, there's only five of us, but they sort of looked at me and said, Steve, what are we going to do? And I said, we're going to love them. <laughs> we're going to love them because that's what God's called us to do. And we've begun to do that. I don't know what God's going to do with it. There's, it's been a wonderful blessing, though, because uh, we've started making friends with them over Christmas. We got them a little, oh, some Christmas CDs and put some candy in it and did some other things. And already they're starting to, you can see the ice beginning to melt. And I pray that God will allow us to, to really have the opportunity through building a relationship with them to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because from outward appearances, at least, uh, I think they would be very, very needy in that way. Yeah, we're supposed to love the unlovely. Do you realize that God commands us to love the unlovely? After Jesus had an encounter with some Sadducees in Matthew 22, this is what we read. You don't have to turn there. I'll get you at the next one, but let me read it to you. In Matthew 22, at verse 20, 34, it says, The Pharisees got together, <laughs> that's always a problem, 
whenever they got together, it was hardly anything good ever came out of it. But the Pharisees, some Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, <clears throat> he, was a, he was a spiritual lawyer here, uh, he, he tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Interesting question. Jesus apparently takes no time at all, and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he could have stopped there, and I think all of us would have said, wow, he's absolutely right. The greatest commandment is obviously to to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. Yes, but he didn't stop there. And then he goes on, Jesus, and he says, and the second is like it. The second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, Jesus said, hang on these two commandments. (laughs) And it is true. Go back and even look at the the great commandments. Look at the Ten Commandments. It's about loving God, but it's also about loving neighbors, even those people who aren't believers. That's what we're called to do. The second is like it. The second is like the first. Do I, I, and sometimes I have to ask myself this question, do I really believe that? I mean, do I really believe that loving my neighbor is next in importance to loving God? Loving that man with the pit bull and his hip-hop music, and the, that, that's next in importance to loving God himself. Do I really believe that? I wonder. I wonder because if I did, then I think I'd be probably doing a much better job of truly loving my unlovely neighbors all around me. Let's be honest. Let's just be honest with one another. I believe that all of us as Christians, we all struggle to love the unlovely, at least at times, don't we? It's hard. It's really hard. I know that I do. But why? Why is it such a struggle for us, for me, to love people who are different from us, to love people who who, who look different, who act different, who speak differently, Why do I sometimes struggle to love people who are not believers? And why do I sometimes expect these people who are not believers to behave as if they were believers and to have the same values that I have as a Christian when they're not a Christian? At least not yet. At least not yet. Well, perhaps the reason that we struggle so much to truly love the unlovely can be found in an amazing story that Jesus had an encounter with a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. And if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, in Scripture, please feel free. I'm going to begin reading it at verse 36. It's Luke chapter 7 at verse 36. This is a, a wonderful story. Again, I want to say this is not a parable. This is a story that actually happened. Luke chapter 7, and follow along as I begin reading at verse 36. And this is what Scripture says. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, some of you know this, but let me just uh, get all of us on the same plane for this because it's important to understand what happens next in the story. When they ate, reclined at the table, what does that mean? Well, when they ate, the tables were really only just like a a foot off the ground. And they laid, uh, when they ate, they laid down on their side and they propped themselves up on their elbow and they ate off the table this way with all their feet extending out and away from the table. So it looked like spokes of a wheel sticking out. That's going to be important to understand what happens next. Look at verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, 
She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a sinner she is, that kind of a woman this is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, because Jesus could read his thoughts. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Now, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the, the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house... I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but she has not stopped. From the time I've entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume in my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. And here's the phrase that ought to pierce our hearts. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Wow. When this woman came to Jesus at night, she, I believe she had undoubtedly heard him speaking and preaching and teaching sometime earlier. And as he taught, his message of forgiveness had pierced her heart. And as she contemplated his message, she began to experience the, ta- the terrible shame and guilt of her life of sin. So she decided to do something about it. And my friends, what this woman did, this is an incredible woman. This is a real woman. This is not a story. This is a real woman. What an example she was, because what did she do? First of all, she went uninvited into the house of a Pharisee. My friends, no one did that. You didn't do that. These Pharisees, they were the political leaders. They were the religious leaders. When you saw them on the street, you walked on the other side. You gave them their distance. She up and just walks into their house uninvited. That's incredible. Any Jew who was reading this and hearing about this after it happened would have been shocked that she had that audacity and nerve. The second thing, she was a woman. And in the perverted value system of the Pharisees, they didn't even think women were worth teaching. And you notice how Jesus just blew that apart, didn't he? Because he taught them. He knew full well. He, he spoke against the terrible, well, pathetic values that the Pharisees had come to hold. She was a woman, and she walked into his house uninvited. That didn't happen. But yet, number three, the worst thing, the hardest thing, was that she was also... A sinful woman, that meant she was at least, at minimum, an adulteress and probably a prostitute. And my friends, a woman who is a prostitute or an adulteress never, ever, ever walked into a Pharisee's house uninvited. But that's exactly what she did. Why? Because she was not going to let anything stand in her way. Nothing was going to stand in her way. She came to Jesus that night with a single purpose in mind to repent of her sin and to seek forgiveness. And she had purposed in her heart to honor Jesus, the author of her forgiveness, by anointing him with precious perfume. But picture this in your mind's eye. But as she stood at his feet, remember they're reclining, as she stood at his feet, and when she looked into that amazing face that loved her, 
and saw that he loved her. She couldn't say anything. Words left her. They choked in her throat. And all she could do was simply burst into tears. Tears of repentance, tears of thankfulness, tears of love. And as the tears of love streamed down her face and poured onto his feet, she was embarrassed. She saw it. She fell to her knees and she undid her long hair and she began to wipe his feet dry. These precious feet that had brought the hope of the gospel, she began to wipe them dry with her own hair. And then, still unable to speak, she kissed the feet of Jesus. Those precious feet. And then she poured the perfume that had been meant for his head, she poured them onto his feet. What a witness, what an example. But then, as you saw, the story takes an unexpected and profoundly sad turn. Because as a woman is repenting of her sin before the Son of God, the Pharisee had nothing but contempt for her. Listen once again to the Pharisee's, Pharisee's pathetic response as he said to himself in his own mind, he said, if this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is. That she's a sinner. Oh my. Oh my, my friends. I... Jesus accepted her repentance. He embraced her. He loved her, but not the Pharisee. Now if anyone should have been willing to befriend and encourage this woman in her act of repentance, it should have been the Pharisee. But the only thing that he gave her was judgment and disgust. And the Pharisees' cold-heartedness toward this precious, repentant woman led Jesus to proclaim the central and most important part of this story. It's a brief little parable. It's probably one of the most shortest parables in the scriptures. And this is it. I'll read it once again. Two men, Jesus said, owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed 500 denarii, the other only 50. But neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? It's such a simple parable. It's not hard. This is one of these real complex ones. You scratch your head and try to figure out what, what was that all about. No, it was such a simple parable, but Jesus was using it to teach the Pharisee and you and me something profoundly critical and important in our life as believers. What was he trying to teach us through us? Well, first... He was using it to shame the Pharisee's arrogance and mine by asking him which of the two debtors in the parable loved him more, the one who had been forgiven little or the one who had been forgiven much. And you remember the Pharisee responded, I suppose the one who had had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you judge correctly. And then he confronted the Pharisee's arrogance and mine because he said to the Pharisee, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Do you see her the way I see her? Do you see her the way God sees her? Do you truly see this woman? Do you see what she's done? He says, you didn't do all these things for me, but she did. And then he says, because she loved much, her sins have been forgiven, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, Jesus was not suggesting that the sinful woman was somehow able to love Jesus more deeply than the Pharisee because she had really serious sin in her life, and he didn't. That's what some people walk away from with this parable. 
And that's wrong. That's not the message. In fact, that's just the opposite of the message Jesus wanted us to take away. Because that's what he was trying to say to Simon the Pharisee. He was saying, you think her sins are so terrible. You think she's the 500 denarii debtor. And that you're only the 50. And that's why she can love me like this. Because she knows the depth of her sin. And you aren't loving me. Why? Because your sins are less? No, no, no. Because you don't understand the depth of your sin. This woman should be your example, Simon. She gets it. You don't. What about us? What about us? When we see the terrible sin of of the unlovely all around us, do we truly understand that our sin is no different than theirs? No, it's not. It's not. That That their sin is no greater than ours. That sin is sin and the only thing that separates us is that we've been forgiven by grace through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and they have yet to be. But there's no difference. You know, sometimes I remember people, when they looked at this parable, they were, I, I've had people do this. They'll say, but you know, Steve, I, I really, I'm really troubled by that parable because I was brought up in a Christian home. Uh, uh, the gospel was, it was read to me. The Bible was read in our home ever since I was a little kid. And then I hear some of these people that God has brought back from this horrible life of sin, this terrible life of sin, and, and maybe I can't love God as much or Jesus as much as, as that person because that person really understands forgiveness because they really sinned. And I can say that to you. I didn't come to Christ until I was 23 years old. And I'm not going to get into what my life was before. We're not going to get into one of those bragging contests. But yeah, I could probably out some of you in the world's eyes. But that's not the point. The point that Jesus is trying to say to this Pharisee, to Simon, is that sin is sin. And no matter how small it is, think of the consequences. Maybe we say, well, I've only ever had trouble. I've just told some lies and some untruths. And at times I've been hateful. And at times I haven't been forgiving. But I haven't done anything as bad as raping someone, murdering someone, stealing someone's possession. I haven't done that. And Jesus is saying, it's the same. Sin is sin. That little lie, that lower level sin, which doesn't exist in Scripture. Think of what that sin, that single sin, think of what it cost. The precious face of Jesus brought us hope and life. They spit on him. They spit in his face. They went up and he slapped him. Scripture says he took a, a stick and he hit him over the head with it. They took a crown of thorns, pressed it, pressed it into his scalp until he bled. And then they mocked him. And then they whipped him. They whipped him until his flesh began to peel. And if that weren't enough, then they laid him out on a cross. And they nailed his hands and his feet with huge spikes onto that. And they lifted him up. They lifted him up and they began mocking him some more. But the worst was yet to come. Because as he was in the midst of all that physical agony, our Heavenly Father took our sin, the stench and filth of every little white lie, every act of unforgiveness, every great sin, small sin, everything in between, and he placed it on his son, Jesus Christ. 
and he had to turn his back from him. He couldn't even look at him anymore. For the first time in all of eternity past, he couldn't look and had to turn away because he was bearing our sin. And Jesus cries out from Psalm 22, David's Psalm, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And praise God that he cried that out. Because when Jesus cried that out, that's our proof, that's our evidence, that's our stamp that we know that he was at that time bearing the sin that you and I have committed. And he was bearing the penalty of it. And if he hadn't ever cried that out, we might not have known. That's what Jesus is trying to sell Simon. Little sin, big sin. Do you know what it cost? Do we know what it cost? Do we really know what it cost? Why do I struggle so much to love the unlovely? Because I don't think I'm as bad as them. I don't think I'm as down and dirty as they are. They do disgusting things. I don't. What a lie. You see, my heart, the reason I struggle to love the unlovely is because sometimes my heart is much more like the Pharisees than it is like Jesus's. Oh, if only we could love and have the humility of Jesus. There's a church in Baltimore right off the Beltway. And this church is, well, it's, it's, it's one of those industrial parks, and it's kind of like a warehouse. And I went there to visit it, and I was struck, because when you came into the lobby, it was like a church lobby I'd never, ever, ever been in. There were no crosses. There were in the, in the auditorium, which was appropriate, just where you have yours. But there wasn't anything out in the lobby. Instead... There were these giant pictures. They were like 20 feet tall and 10 feet wide, and they were different, strange pictures of people. One was a picture of what was obviously a cross-dresser. Another was a picture of someone who was clearly an addict. Another one was clearly a prostitute. And you went around all this, these pictures, and it hits you. And I remember talking to the pastor about it, and I said, why? This is, this is different. Why are you doing this? And he said to me, he said to me, for two reasons, Steve. He said, number one, to remind us who God is calling us to love. And then he said something which broke my heart and brought tears to my eyes. And he said it also to remind us, Steve, of who we were. Because everyone's picture in this lobby was someone who has now become a believer in Jesus Christ. And every one of these people are now serving him in this church and in the community. They're serving Jesus Christ. He said, we don't want to ever forget that. That's what Jesus was trying to tell Simon. Don't forget it. Don't forget who you are. Love the unlovely. In closing, this is the part of the sermon. Ordinarily, you expect an appeal from me to, to apply the message to your lives. In this case, to truly love the unlovely. Your unlovely co-workers your unlovely family members, and of course, the many unlovely neighbors that God causes to cross your path. But I want to share something with you right now that, that might make a few of you uncomfortable. And I don't mean to make you uncomfortable except through God's spirit, because that's what happened to me. I felt uncomfortable when God revealed it to me. God recently challenged me with something in his word about loving the unlovely that I had been unaware of. I had read it before, but I never really grasped it. And he challenged my heart with it. It was clearly stated in his word, but somehow I had overlooked it. My friends, 
this was what he showed me. He showed me that there is a group of unlovely neighbors that God loves deeply, living all around us, but who many Christians, including me, for so long, ignored and secretly despised. They're poor, they're needed, needy, but they're often hated, even by Christians. Who are they? They're the often invis invisible immigrants, some of them illegal, that are living all around us. They're the unlovable immigrants who have come in search of a better life for their families. My friends, God broke my heart with his challenges to me in his word about loving immigrants. Do you realize that there are scores of passages in God's word that clearly state God's love and concern for immigrants and our responsibility to love them? And if you'd like a list of all of them, please get me. I'll email them to you. I can give you all of them. It's amazing. It's, it permeates God's word about loving them. Let me just give you two. One's from Leviticus chapter 19, and it says this, when an alien, when an immigrant lives in your land, do not mistreat him. The immigrant, the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. And then God says this, he says, love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. And then in Deuteronomy 10, he says he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. My friends, over and over again in God's word, it commands us to love the immigrant, but somehow I never saw it. I was a bit like Josiah. You remember the story of Josiah when he's, re when he's rebuilding the temple? And all of a sudden, as they're rebuilding the temple, they discover God's word. They discover the law of Moses. That's bizarre. How could God's word become lost right there in the very temple of God? And yet it had become lost and ignored, and that's exactly what these verses had been in my heart. They had somehow become lost and ignored, and God showed them to me. Now, please hear me. And you got to listen careful. This thing has gotten so unfortunately politicized, whether it's liberals, conservatives, or Democrats, Republicans, I don't really care. I'm sick of the politicization of this thing. I'm not suggesting that we should ignore the law, never. And I'm not suggesting that we should ignore the sovereignty of our borders. I'm simply urging us to obey God and to love the immigrants. And maybe the model for this is you might remember that little book in the New Testament that Paul wrote called Philemon. There was somebody in that book, his name was Onesimus. Onesimus was, wow, was he out of whack with the law because he was a runaway slave. He had run away. And Paul, Paul was now writing that letter to say, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon. But you know what Paul did? He didn't send him back as just a slave anymore. He tells Philemon, I'm sending him back as a brother. I'm sending him back as a Christian. Why? Because the first thing Paul did was to share the hope of the gospel. That was the response. I don't know what that should look like for you. I have no idea. But I know what it looks like for me. About a year and a half ago, Alex Mendez, our national director of Hispanic ministry for the EFCA, he contacted me. He knew God was working on my heart in this way. And he said, he contacted me and wanted to know if our district would be willing to serve as the pilot district for a project called Immigrant Hope that the EFCA was launching and it's going to make part of, uh, well, it'll be nationwide. And I prayed about it, but it wasn't long. We said, yeah, we'd be delighted to. And now the First Evangelical Free Church in Brooklyn is our first, is a pilot church, is our first welcoming church. 
And what they're doing there is simply providing totally certified, trained, we provide all that by the Bureau of Immigrant Affairs, provide ways for these immigrants to become legalized. But here's the point. Yes, they want ESL classes. Yes, they want a whole lot of other things. And you people have such a heart. I don't know what God's going to do amongst you. But I do know this. When they are able to be ministered to by the body of Christ tangibly in a way that is critically important to them, what's the legal path to becoming a citizen? Oh, how it opens up the doors. And then you say, you know what? There's, we're meeting on Thursday night. There's a group. We want to, we're studying the book of Mark. Would you, would you like to come? You have no idea the difference makes. And to see these people coming to faith, to see them coming to know Jesus Christ, that's the blessing. I don't know what it would look like, as I said. But I do know this. God loves them. There are some of the unlovely. There's some of the unlovely, and sometimes it's hard for some of us to love the unlovely, isn't it? You know, some of you are asking, why is the district doing this? Again, because we want to share and earn the privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being the church that you are. You're a jewel in the crown, believe me. God is doing wonderful things with you, and I can't wait to see all that he's going to do with you. And if there's any way that we can encourage you to continue what you're doing, to continue to lower the barriers in our hearts, to love the unlovely, then that's what we'd feel called to do and blessed to do. Bow your heads in prayer with me, would you? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your amazing love that we will never comprehend. We don't understand it, Lord. We can't understand it. For Father, you showed us mercy when we didn't deserve it. When we should have borne the penalty of our sins, you chose not to collect on us. And you took that penalty that had to be paid, but instead of collecting it from us, you, you collected it from your very own son on the cross of Calvary. And Father, we confess to you today that if there were no afterlife, if, there, if life ended at death, we would still be deeply, deeply grateful people because you chose not to collect on our debt of sin. But Lord, you did much more than that. In addition to mercy, you poured out your grace on us and you made us your, your children. You made us joint heirs with your son, Jesus Christ. You call us your people and you are our God. And Father, most incredible of all, you, you love us so much, you want us to spend eternity with you. We'll never understand that, never. But Father, as if all that weren't enough, you went even further, and for those days that you've ordained for us as we walk this earth, you've given us the honor and the privilege and the responsibility to serve you. Oh, Father, we're so unworthy to be your servants. You've called us to serve, and we realize that you've called us many times as the weaker vessel, as the broken vessel, so that your name is glorified and honored. Father, bless this church. Thank you for what they're doing. Thank you for their heart as they engage their community, as they love the unlovely, and as they share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless them, Lord. Strengthen them and keep them. And we pray it all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.